Hello, church. Today we're going to be looking at a sermon that I've entitled Ministering in God's Kingdom. We're going to be looking in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, and the verses we'll be considering will be verses 13 to 21. Now, Matthew, as the writer of this gospel, presents Jesus as the prophesied Messiah and rightful king. Along with profiling the qualities and characteristics of the king, Matthew also records for us the teachings about this king's kingdom. When all is said and done, we are really left with two questions. Do you want to be part of this kingdom? And will you humbly submit to serving this king? And we see both responses in Matthew's gospel. We see those who willingly submit to Jesus' kingship, and we see those who openly spurn and reject him. Now, over the previous chapters, we have seen the religious leaders begin already as skeptics and grow increasingly hostile over time. We know that before this gospel is finished, the religious leaders will have actively and successfully plotted and schemed to achieve Jesus' crucifixion. We also see growing political rejection. Herod the Great attempted to have Jesus destroyed when only a baby. Herod's son, Antipas, fears Jesus as the resurrected John the Baptist. Sadly, at no time does Antipas come to Jesus and fall on his knees seeking forgiveness. No, he only ultimately mocks him and then joins up with the religious leaders. The people, for the most part, are fickle and uncommitted. They enjoy the spectacle of Jesus' miraculous healings and such, but they are unwilling to give him their hearts and their lives their devotion and obedience. Whenever Jesus demands something of them, they often turn away. We just spent several weeks studying the parables of Matthew 13. The people of Capernaum and of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth turn from him and his teaching. They are clear examples of the hard soil in his first parable, that the seed is unsuccessful in penetrating. The people of Nazareth find Jesus to be a stumbling block. They can't get past the fact that he is just one of them, a commoner. All of the individuals we've talked about were expecting a Messiah, but they were all suffering from God-in-a-box-itis. You see, they all had expectations of what this prophesied Messiah would be. They had, as it were, created a Messiah in their own image. And Jesus doesn't fit that mold. They were looking for a Messiah king who would free them from their oppressors. And he would. But they had already defined their oppressor as human, as Roman. Jesus came to set them free from their spiritual oppressor, Satan. He came to free them from the chains of sin and guilt so that they could find their freedom in him, in the forgiveness he so freely offered. In Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus quoted Isaiah when he said, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. But it was a freedom from the power and penalty of sin to which he was referring. Remember that in Luke 19, verse 10, he said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As well, they were looking for a Messiah king who would be a healer and provider. And he would. 
In fact, we're going to see that today. But the people stopped at wanting a physical healer and provider. Jesus came to do so much more. What about you? Have you placed your own expectations and restrictions on what Jesus is or isn't? On what Jesus demands or doesn't? Are you fixated on a Jesus of your own making? Or are you willing to let Jesus be Jesus and then respond accordingly? This particular account that we're going to look at today is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Now this tells us that it's a particularly significant story with significant lessons to learn. So to set the stage before we read the passage, I want you to remember the things that Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of heaven. I want you to realize that it is springtime, the beginning of his third year of ministry. John's gospel records that the Passover was at hand. There is significance in that. And that means that we are one year away from Jesus' crucifixion. A sobering thought. This means that Jesus has a year to complete the training he intends for his disciples. That's where his focus is going to be from here on in. And as his disciples in 2021, there is much that we can learn as well. So turn, please, to Matthew chapter 14, and let's read verses 13 to 21. Matthew 14 Verses 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and they said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And then they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come together and read this passage, we... um, We just want to acknowledge that we are your disciples too, and we want to serve in your kingdom. We also recognize our own limitations and and shortcomings. We ask you to help us to learn how you intend for us to serve, what that looks like, what it means for us, and what it requires of us. Father, open our eyes to see what we need to see here so that we can better serve you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I've split this, uh, this portion up into three key points. And the first one is that the king retreats from demands. You'll recall that last week we looked at the account of the execution of John the Baptist. This was a member of Jesus' family and a significant loss just on that count. 
but he was also the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus honored John in Matthew chapter 11. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Jesus asks, sorry, Jesus asks, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. In his humanity, Jesus felt and grieved that loss. In Mark chapter 6, we learn that the ministry demands were extremely heavy at this time as well. In verse 31, Mark records, And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so Jesus invites his disciples to join him in retreating from the demands of the ministry in order to rest. In our North American culture, busy often equates with productive and is even seen as morally good. And this leaks over into our church culture as well. Oftentimes, at least pre-COVID, a church was evaluated on the number of ministries and programs it was running. Again, we're using a consumeristic assessment tool here. But the busier one was with churchy things, the more spiritual one was presumed to be. To burn out for Jesus was seen as respectable and admirable. I think one of the things that God has been teaching us at Fellowship Oshawa in this season is that less can actually be more, that simple is good. Believe me, it's not that we are doing less work. It's that we are focused on fewer things so that we can do those fewer things really well. And we're striving to be intentional about making space and time in our lives so that we can welcome others in. In our lives, a balance needs to be struck. In Romans 12, verse 11, Paul exhorts us, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We need to work to serve as unto the Lord and not be lazy. There is much to be done. Jesus said in Matthew 9, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we need to make sure that we are doing our part for the kingdom of God. Jesus has given us a task to do. But at the same time, we need to balance that with appropriate quiet and rest. It was built right into the fabric of the creation when God rested on the seventh day. Why? Because he was weary? No, but to set the example for us. We as humans do get weary. We do need to rest. Jesus shows us through this account with his disciples that rest comes from spending time away with him, ceasing from our labors, even our labors for the kingdom. The ceasing from our labors is not enough, though. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is absolutely true that we need to cease laboring to be good enough to be acceptable to God. And we need to rest in the completed work of Jesus, our Savior. But it doesn't stop there. The disciples were right there with Jesus. They heard him actually speak with a physical voice, and they missed the point often. How much more likely are we to miss his instruction to us? We need to stop striving, 
turn off the noise, the noise of social media, the cares of this world, sometimes the demands of our, our jobs and occupations, and, and come to him in a quiet place to have him give us rest. It is in the quiet of his rest that we will most clearly hear his voice. Now that rest and peace doesn't seem to last long, however. As Jesus and his disciples cross the lake on a boat, the people see them and anticipate their destination. Some were able to run ahead and be on the shore waiting to greet Jesus with their needs. (laughs) Jesus the king does not respond with resentment. Instead, and here's our second point, the king responds with compassion. The king responds with compassion. The trip by boat was around four miles or six and a half kilometers, while the same trip on land would have been about eight miles or almost 13 kilometers. Verse 14 says that there was a great crowd. Now, initially, perhaps the crowd wasn't that big as the weak and the sick obviously couldn't run the 13 kilometers faster than the boat was able to travel half that distance. But eventually the rest caught up. And crowds tend to draw crowds. Keep in mind that it was almost the annual Passover celebration, and there would be many travelers in the area as well, who might very well take this opportunity to see this Jesus that they had probably heard about. Before the day is over, the crowd has swelled to 5,000 men. Now, women who were often drawn to Jesus, would not have traveled alone, so they likely came with fathers, brothers, or husbands. And children were seen as a blessing from God. Families tended to be large. So it would not be unrealistic if there were 5,000 men to estimate the size of the crowd to be over 20,000 people. Jesus goes to work. The weak and the sick would have required help to travel all that distance. The king has compassion on his people, and he heals their physical ailments. This was very likely a full day's work. Having just finished teaching parables describing the ultimate fate of the unrighteous, Jesus has compassion on their souls as well. He longs to bring spiritual healing to his people. Despite the miraculous aspect of the physical healings, Every single individual there would ultimately die. Where would be the ultimate destination of their souls? Listener, what is the ultimate destination of your soul? We have said it before, and we will keep on saying it at Fellowship Oshawa. Your good deeds are not good enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Church attendance won't do it, nor your money or family connections. Only the righteous can enter the kingdom. And where do we get that righteousness? Paul tells us in Philippians 3 verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we can't earn our righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness. And we receive it by faith when we repent of our sins and turn to him for forgiveness and healing. And now we come to the third point in our study. The king supplies with generosity. The king supplies with generosity. Jesus also uses his opportunity as a training exercise for his disciples. 
In the account in John's Gospel, he looks at the large crowd, and while they're working, he asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, John 6, verse 6 tells us, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus plants the question in Philip's mind to see what the response would be. Now, I have to admit, I can relate to Philip. You see, the you can see the gears turning in his head as he starts to do some rough estimating of the size of the crowd before them. And then he starts to tally in his head what it would cost to feed this group, you know, 45, 70, carry the two hundred and fifty-eight. Oh, Lord, are you kidding? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. Now, a denarius was a coin that amounted to a day's pay for a day laborer. 200 denarii was the equivalent of about eight months' pay working six days a week. Jesus waits for something, anything, anything but this doubt from the disciples. But there's nothing. In fact, when evening comes, the disciples tell Jesus that it's time to send the people away into the cities so that they can get food. Now, uh, if it's evening, chances are that the markets are closed already. People would have packed up their, their things in their stalls and would have headed for home themselves. So the chances are that these people walking from this desolate place without having had anything to eat through the day and going back to the markets may have actually found the markets to be closed and they wouldn't have gotten anything. Now, you might think that I'm being kind of hard on the disciples. You might be thinking, I don't know if I'd be expecting Jesus to do something miraculous here. Now, I could, of course, remind you of the times already where Jesus cast out demons or when he healed on the Sabbath, but I don't need to. Let me ask you this. What had they been doing all day long? They had been managing a crowd of over 20,000 people, bringing the sick and the infirm to Jesus so that he could heal them. You've got leprosy? Be healed. You're blind? Now you can see. You've got tuberculosis? You are healed. You've been lame since birth? Rise up and walk. Palsy? Stroke? Internal bleeding? Healed. Why was it so hard for them to imagine that Jesus could miraculously provide food for the crowd? Why didn't they just ask? Why don't we? Listener, have you never clearly seen the hand of God at work in your life? Something that could not have been anything else but him? I know I have. I have seen him accomplish the so-called impossible And I still forget. I still doubt. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God that continues to be so patient with your lack of faith? I certainly am. Jesus says they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Again, John's gospel tells us that Andrew, Andrew found a boy who still had some food left over from his lunch, five small loaves, each of which would have been about the size of a hamburger bun, and two dried fish. And then he says, but but what are they among so many? I love the fact that despite the hopelessness of the task, Andrew at least went to see what he could find 
And despite the fact that it was nowhere near what would be needed, he brought it to Jesus. Jesus doesn't berate Andrew for not doing more. He works with the little that Andrew brings. He looks up to heaven, which was a common posture for prayer in that time, and he says a blessing. And then then he begins breaking the loaves and distributing them to the disciples. Now, it's unclear just when exactly the miraculous magnifying of the resources takes place. It would seem that as the disciples obey and begin working with what Jesus gives them, more is provided. The bread and the fish just keep coming from Jesus' hand, and the disciples keep doling it out to the people until, as it says in verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. Now, the word that's used for satisfied here describes a contented fullness. Notice that when Jesus provides, he's never stingy. He doesn't hold back at all. This is true about Jesus all the time because he's just like his father in this way. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul describes this same characteristic of God. He writes, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, and that's now God's grace, which he lavished upon us. He didn't give us a little pinch. No, no, he lavished it upon us. And then later in chapter 2, verse 7, he writes, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listener, the very fact that God was willing to send his son here to to earth to die in your place so that you might be redeemed and forgiven demonstrates the magnificent generosity of God's heart. He didn't send some lackey. He gave his son. And Jesus is just doing exactly what he has seen his father do so often. Give generously. The tragedy is that despite all of the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God, these people who had received his generosity and grace remained for the most part unaffected. We see this in John's gospel again later in chapter 6, where Jesus leaves unnoticed, and so the people go to seek him again. And when they find him, he reveals their motivation to them. In John 6 verse 26, Jesus says, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he tells them to seek the food that endures to eternal life, which only he can give. And then he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And their response is, "Uh, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Goodness. How it must have broken Jesus' heart to see the hardness of their hearts, their outright refusal to believe in him. What more would he have to do? And I want you to notice one other thing. As the disciples give out the bread and fish to the people, Jesus never promises that he'll provide for their hunger, and they don't ask. Perhaps they are learning to trust him after all. 
And what happens when this massive crowd of people has been fed with five small loaves and two little fish? Jesus tells the disciples to go pick up what's left. And then God makes sure it's recorded just how much there was left over for you and for me. How much was left? That's right. Twelve baskets full. A basket for each of the disciples. Did you catch that? Jesus takes care of his disciples' needs too. And you know what really blows me away? Is that it includes Judas, who would ultimately betray him. We are a year away from his crucifixion. And he is just as generously and just as caringly providing for Judas's needs too. Ponder that. Ponder that. As we close, let's just summarize some applications for us as disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, laborers in his kingdom. Number one, our resources are paltry, but Jesus takes the little we have and makes it more than enough. Let me read that again. Our resources are paltry, but Jesus takes the little we have and makes it more than enough. Disciple of Jesus, what does he ask of you? Everything you have. And even then, it's not enough. But he takes the little that we bring to him by faith, and he grows it to meet the need. Remember this. God will always provide the resources for the work he calls you to do. Number two, while providing resources for kingdom work, Jesus will also be sure to look after you. While providing resources for kingdom work, Jesus will also be sure to look after you. Follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. As a consequence, you can be sure that your own needs will be met as well. As you work for the kingdom, have faith that Jesus will meet your needs while you step out in obedience to him. However, this doesn't mean that he'll provide everything right at the start. The disciples received enough to take care of them for that time, not for the next year or even the next week. We need to continually look to Jesus, to abide in him, and trust him to meet our needs. And the third thing I want you to remember is this. In order to labor for Jesus, we need to find our rest in him. In order to labor for Jesus, we need to find our rest in him. Our bodies need proper rest, both in terms of a good night's sleep and regular downtime from our work. But if we are going to be effective in kingdom work, we need most of all to find our rest in Jesus. We need him to fill our buckets, so to speak. And that means being intentional about spending alone time with him. He invited his disciples to do so, and he invites us to do so as well. Make time with him a part of your daily pattern. Be still and listen for his voice, and he will provide the rest you need to do his work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, <laughs> for your greatness. We thank you for how you are awesomely able to provide every need 
We think of this this story, this account that we read, where 20,000 people were satisfied completely with five small loaves and two fish when they came from your hand. And we think about the disciples who were laboring for you in this work and that you provided for them as well. You met their needs also. We thank you that your name is, in the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And that's just a a declaration of trust and faith in a God who is good, in a God who provides, in a God who supplies our needs. Uh, Father, we just thank you for the fact that you are that kind of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're just like your father in that aspect. And as children of your father, um, we know we trust that our needs will be met as well. Remind us, Lord Jesus, that we need to be spending alone time with you. We need to be hearing your voice. We need to be abiding in you. And then as we go to work, we pray that we would do that um, obediently and full of faith, trusting you to supply the needs that the kingdom work may have. And we pray that you would receive all the glory and that we would just see your mighty hand at work as we obey faithfully. And we ask it in your beautiful and precious name. Amen.